mountain biking is so much harder in terms of the logistics and organising things compared to road cycling. Hey podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting or just riding around, sit down and listen in because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo, welcome to episode 97 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's talking logistics. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist. And you can find this episode at semiprocycling.com forward slash Cadell. Now, a review, of course, to get us underway today. Simply the best, five stars by Daddy Cat from the US. I am amazed at the quality and quantity of information that Damien packs into each show. It's aimed at the semi-pro, but it's also great for non-racing cyclists that want to improve. I love the enthusiasm. I love the format, and I love the topics. Not only is it the best cycling podcast, it is one of the best podcasts out there, period. Daddy Cat, that is a huge compliment, and thank you very much for writing that review and taking the time out to go to iTunes, and definitely a reminder to you that if you do like the show, I would love a review on iTunes or Stitcher, because five stars makes me feel... Thank you very much, and thank you, Karate Kid. Now, the two great articles that I came across this week, the first one is a Velo News article that Dr. Stephen McGregor wrote about his athlete, Carter Jones. And I don't know if you can go back to last year when I actually interviewed Dr. Stephen McGregor about Carter Jones because 2013 was a breakout year for him and the performance of winning the King of the Mountain jersey at the Tour of California really marked him as having arrived in the U.S. domestic scene, if not starting to creep up into the Euro World Cup scene. Carter Jones has followed up this year with another great start to the season, and on Velo News, Dr. McGregor digs into his numbers and compares his stress balance and a few other things over the two years. So the first thing to note from this article is the move away from linear periodization and mainly due to the need to be at a consistent fitness level throughout a season. So not sacrificing fitness by having long tapers going into races. And as Dr. McGregor goes on to say, the traditional taper is sometimes overdone, especially in highly fit competitors. And the athlete ends up being too fresh and consequently loses the sharpness necessary for optimal performance on the actual competition day. And this is definitely something I follow as well. A two-week taper for me is a little bit of overkill when you can just do specific race prep going into a stage race. But you do need some freshness because if you are racing very hard on consecutive days, your fatigue is naturally going to increase. So you need to combat that a bit before you get to that start line. But you also need to hold on to the extra fitness and even just not let the body forget what it's like to hurt. McGregor aims for short peaks instead of long tapers and he does this through using performance modeling and of course any coach that uses power will be familiar with this. This is the performance management chart. And 
Here he is describing the big picture training objectives prior to a stage race, where he says the highest fitness possible with enough freshness so that the rider is not buried midway through the race, and this is the tricky part, not too fresh as to be flat at the start of the race. So it's very important to think about what's actually happening in the race itself, what the stages will be, how hard they will be, and for the Tour of Gila, that Carter won this year, he talks about the first stage being very important, so he needs to be ready from day one. And he talks about the optimal TSB, training stress balance, for a target competition is approximately plus 10. And because Carter needed to perform well in that first stage, the plan was to target a TSB in stage one of between plus 10 and plus 20. The TSB ended up being plus 16 and with a concurrent CTL of 150 TSB per day. So something that I want to note here is that 150 TSS a day is where Euro pros aim for before spring classics and big tours. Of course, every rider is going to be different here, but this is really great coaching from McGregor and his number was spot on to where my head is at as well. So there are more details on the race itself in the article, but I won't go into that except to say, yes, he did win the race, the Tour of Gila, and then he went on to race the Tour of Cali, aiming for a top 10 finish. So this is part two of the story. Here again is looking at every stage that is in a stage race and assessing whether you need to be ready from day one or you can hold off a little bit. And the first stage wasn't very hard and we did see a sprint that was won by Mark Cavendish. So they actually held off on intensity and there were seven days between the end of Gila and the start of California so you need as much time to recover as possible so they held off intensity and used the first stage as an opener rather than doing it before that first stage which I thought was really interesting because then it's an opener for stages two and three which were really really important in getting the GC timing. So the TSB plan when they went into this was to come in a little bit higher because he was going to ride into form rather than starting strong. And his TSB was 32 TSS to start the race and he bottomed out at minus 54 the day after the final stage, which really isn't too crazy. I have seen lower because that just follows the whole theory that the more you do, the more you can actually handle. But luckily on that last day when he was down in the negatives, it was a sprint finish, not an attack kind of day or no big hills that he had to use a lot of his fitness because he may not have had it but in the end he finished 11th so one spot out of his target and I'd have to say that is pretty good that's a pretty solid effort coaching and riding wise to end up pretty much satisfying his goals from the start of the season. There are a couple of other takeaways that I've picked up from the two charts that accompany the article. And when you look at them, you see the overall pattern from 2013 to 2014. You can really see the change in strategy as the CTL gradually builds in 2013, something that you can only do if you're in control of your schedule. That means if you aren't doing big races, you have the time to be consistent and just build slowly rather than having to be competitive at other events where you see it going up and down. And that is what happened in 2014, where you see big ups and downs depending on racing. There is a lot of 
aggressive fitness building, but then a lot of aggressive resting. So it's a little bit different than just a steady build. It's kind of up, down, up, down to get to pretty similar numbers at around the same kind of time. The other interesting thing about 2014 is that big races mean big fitness increases. So there may be a cost of specific training when you get into these races, but you are going to see a really high ramp rate. And hopefully, if you are at a stage race, you can handle this because you have the recovery system around you. You have people doing things for you, so it allows you to rest. So it's kind of like a training camp where at any point you just get that big boost that's really going to help you out if you can sustain that for the rest of that cycle. But here are some numbers to try and make sense of the difference between the approach Dr. McGregor and Jones took in 2014 versus 2013. Both years start out in January at a TSS of around 100 a day. And also, they both finish after the Tour of California around the same date at 165 TSS per day. They started at the same point and they finished at the same point, but in the middle, it's a little different. And this is when, if you start looking at the ramp rates of the monthly TSS, you start to understand the difference in strategy. Because in 2013, from January, two blocks in, the CTL was at 132 per day. There were smaller rest periods, and after the second block and rest period, the TSS was at 144 TSS per day. Where you compare that to starting in January, again, you start at 100, but then after one big block, the TSS per day was at 125 after a very big rest period. So there was a much more aggressive ramp, and then there was a much more aggressive decline in the CTL. But by the time Jones had finished his second building block, he was at 145 TSS per day, then around 130 after the rest. The ramp rate was higher, but more rest and finishing at about the same point. So the actual numbers themselves don't reveal too much, but there is a bit of a surprise because the peak in 2013 was actually higher than 2014, where Jones peaked at 162 TSS a day on the 20th of the 4th. This is an average monthly ramp rate over 16 weeks of 15.5, where in 2014, he peaked 5 TSS per day less at 157 on around the same date. And you can see that the average monthly ramp rate over 16 weeks dropped from 15.5 to 14.25. The reason that this peak is lower could be due to the illness that's noted in the 2014 chart, but knowing the results from 2014, it seems that this didn't affect Jones. And what's more exciting, as noted by Dr. McGregor, is that if he can continue to produce this type of output, then he can get higher fitness next year. So both these strategies are super aggressive and require a lot of recovery. But what you're talking about when you're talking of TSS per day of 150, you're more or less talking about 20 hours plus of training on the bike, depending on the intensity that he's doing. Definitely a great effort here, and I can't wait to see what happens next year for Carter, maybe following in the footsteps of Phil Guyman. So article number two is a study called HIT maintains performance during the transition period and improves next season performance in well-trained cyclists. So the purpose of this study was to investigate combining low-intensity exercise training with 
one high-intensity endurance training session every 7 to 10 days versus traditional approach of focusing on low-intensity training during the transition period. And the effects of different training strategies during the transition period were investigated after the transition period at the beginning of the subsequent competition season. So I hope it is obvious how useful this study is because in our endeavor to hold on to fitness from the past year and start the next year at a higher level than we started the year before, this could be part of the answer in maintaining that without actually stressing your mind and your body too much. They took well-trained cyclists It doesn't say how many they took, but they were tested after the competition season and then after an eight-week transition period and after a 16-week preparatory period before the subsequent competition season. The only difference between groups was a larger time in the hit during the transition phase in the experimental training. So eight weeks is a long transition period and you would have to say you really want maximum of four weeks off a bike And then if you include base training, so what they're talking about, low intensity training in the other four weeks, that would be part of it. So they're talking about adding high intensity to that period where you are doing base training in zone one or zone two and seeing what the effect of that is when trying to maintain fitness. So the results, and they're not very clear in the results where they're kind of saying it was very likely that the experimental training had a large impact on power output at four minimals which is at threshold. So after both the transition period and the preparatory period, the traditional group went down to 8.2% from 10.6%, and the experimental group went down from 12.9% to 11.9%. So there is a small difference there. So that is pretty encouraging for the high-intensity training. And they also quote that it is very likely that the experimental training had a larger impact on mean power output in the 40-minute all-out time trial over the transition period than the traditional training. So what are the conclusions that we can draw from this? Because really it does support the idea that high-intensity training sessions should be incorporated during a transition phase to avoid reduction in fitness and performance level and thereby increase the likelihood of increased performance from the end of one season to the beginning of the subsequent season. So the signs are good here for fitness measures and really it's hard to argue with the results. But the thing that I understand a transition period being important for is the rejuvenation of your mind, of resetting that ability to handle the stress and pressure and what happens under heavy training loads. So that for me happens in the transition period as well. So you would really have to hone in on exactly how an athlete is coping with this high intensity training when normally they would be more relaxed when they're focused on just going out on long rides and they're not really focused on doing any of the hard stuff too early in the season because they could experience burnout later on. Definitely there are other factors to consider even though the numbers do indicate that this is a really good way to hold on to fitness which is very important if you have limited time to train and you're trying to hold on to that hard-earned fitness from year to year. Alrighty then, the nuts and bolts this week, learning from Cadell and his career. Really, 
a look at Cadell's journey today. And considering where Cadell is in his career, I think it's fitting to take a look at Australia's most accomplished cyclist. What made him a champion? And more specifically, what role did sports science play in developing his talent and helping him win the Tour de France? On a personal note, Cadell has always been an inspiration to me and has been intertwined with my cycling journey ever since 1993 when I arrived at Fredbow for my first national mountain bike championships to hear his name being called out in the juniors race while I was getting ready for my race. We would go on to share race reconnaissance information together while I watched him take on the world in the Mountain Bike World Cup and then finally watching him grow up through road cycling and mature to become the best in the world and finally win a world championship and of course the tour. So a lot of what I'm talking about today was put into a presentation by the Australian Institute of Sport, the AIS, the senior sports physiologist Dr. David Martin there who worked closely with Cadell over many years through to his transition to MAPI Sports where he started writing for MAPI in the early 2000s. So Dr. Martin starts off the presentation looking at the desirable conditions of success and to put this into context he talks about the Australian Institute of Sport and its development from its beginning in 1981 and how they've tried to foster an environment that creates and supports and grows athletes and sport science itself. So there are six factors that he believes contribute to the culture of the Australian Institute of Sport, which ultimately played a really big role in shaping Cadell from the start of his career because from very early on he was connected to the AIS. So number one is talented people but he defines talented people as growth-minded, people that are willing and open to look for answers to problems, to keep moving forward, to keep asking questions, to keep improving themselves. He believes that is the number one prerequisite for the people that are involved in the process. Number two, committed, motivated coaching. So it's not just about the athletes and them wanting to move themselves forward. The coaching staff has to also move in the same direction and be as hungry and committed as the athletes. Number three, a challenging competitive environment in the sports. And in cycling, if you aren't competing at a high level from very early on, then you don't get that experience you need. And by the time you reach your late 20s, early 30s, when you're starting to physically peak, maybe you just don't have enough experience because you haven't started early enough. Number four, strong, compassionate leadership. This is more about having stability in leadership. So even if you're a parent of a child that you want to get coached, you have to be stable in your relationship with your child and with the coach. You you can't be pulling levers and trying to control the situation because you don't like what's happening. You have to believe in what's going on and that comes to having stability and belief in yourself. And so if you transfer that into sports scientists and coaches and athletes in a institutional kind of setting, then it's good to understand that leadership plays a really important role if it is stable and it allows people and ideas underneath them to grow. Number five, committed, connected sports medicine. So this is a really big part of it and it's sometimes lost where the science itself isn't allowed to move into practical applications in sport. So there's a lot that has to go between these two and a lot of trust between the two areas of coaching 
and sports science. And number six, the final one, is exciting, inspiring sports science. So you want to have passionate sports scientists that are striving for innovation, that are looking for the edge. They're looking for a way to move their athletes and sports science as a whole forward and contribute more than just for their own benefit, but for the benefit of everybody. Cadell was part of the AIS from 1994 until the year 2000 after the Olympics. And there was a couple of years in the wilderness. And then he started with MAPI in 2002. And this presentation was in 2011. And he was still at MAPI then. And I don't doubt that he is connected to MAPI today. If you don't know who MAPI is, it's actually a company that was founded in Milan in Italy in 1937. And To throw you entirely off the scent, they produce adhesives and other complementary products for floor and wall coverings. But there's also a bit of a history with MapEye because the CEO of the MapEye group, which oversees worldwide operations, he's a huge fan of road bike racing. And under his leadership, the company sponsored the team by the same name, MapEye. And they were a very successful team. And they had one of the classic and best looking kits that was ever developed for a road cycling team. But MapEye Sport was founded in 96 to support the athletes of the MapEye professional cycling team, as well as other visiting teams. So Australian cyclists have been attending the MapEye Sport center for many years and this relationship was forged when Kidel moved from the AIS to MAPI and being based in Europe for his road riding. In the two-year gap between the Olympics in 2000 and 2002, in 2001 he raced mountain bikes again for Cannondale Volvo mountain bike team and then the next year he went to their road squadra sponsored by Seiko Coffee Machines which is most famous for being Chippo's team. But if you look at the context of what was happening behind the scenes here, going from the AIS and then moving through to MapEye, Cadell started out being coached by Damien Grundy from pretty much the beginning of his cycling career in mountain bikes. And Damien Grundy took him quite far, basically through to MapEye. But there was another influence before he got to MapEye, and that was Heiko Swartzdahl. And I know I've got that name wrong, but he is the East German cycling coach that in 1990, as soon as the wall went down, he was employed by the Australian Institute of Sport to start a road cycling program. And he brought all of his East German knowledge. And there are lots of stories about the hell that he put cyclists through. But the results started to come when he put all of this together and he played a big part in Cadell and Cadell actually got a bronze medal at the World Road Time Trial Championships as a junior so he was kind of going between disciplines even back then but in 2002 Aldo Sassi was the one that helped the transition for Cadell and he started coaching him I'll touch on that in just a moment but the combination of science and sport is built on relationships and like I said there's that link between coaches and sports science that the athletes benefit from and having an environment that encourages science and coaches 
to work together. And in the context of where Australia was at the time, Cadell was placed into the inaugural AIS mountain bike squad and Australia put together the program with aspiring and effective sports scientists that was super passionate about developing Australia's high performance program. So one interesting anecdote that Dr. Martin brings up about Cadell's time in the mountain bike program is that it was at the same time that Heiko was in charge of the road squad and the MTB squad would actually train with the road squad at times. I was actually around this environment as well and the roadies were the enemies of all mountain bikers at pretty much every level of the sport in Australia. And so mountain biking was a new discipline with a short history in Australia and abroad also. And I think it was this tension that had this rivalry between the two camps. And it's really interesting to hear Dr. Martin talk about Cadell experiencing this tension in the combined training camps where every tactic was used to punish the mountain bikers. And it wasn't by the staff, it was by the roadies themselves. So they would do crazy things like make sure that they run out of water or attack on hills or do whatever they could to bring down the mountain bikers. But, and you will see a theme here, Dr. Martin thinks that this added to the fire in Cadell's belly. This is also the time where we can start to see his work ethic because even as a 17-year-old, he's going out doing structured training. And for example, there is a picture of his diary where he did back-to-back five-hour days when he was 17 years old and that would just highlight 10 hours in two days for a 17 year old is quite a lot of work and if you do want to know he did zone one for most of that time with some tempo work at 45 minutes for one of the days and an hour tempo for the next day but the program that Australia put together at the Australian Institute of Sport allowed the riders to travel to big international races where he started to test himself against the best in the world on a regular basis and from a very young age he was pulling top 10s in mountain bike world cups and you can kind of see why when you have a look at his physiology at 21 and he is 179 centimeters tall at the time he weighed 62 kilograms which I remember when he got into this program he was a little pudgy but then as soon as he started concentrating and focusing really closely on his diet he reduced a lot of weight to try and increase his power to weight ratio and he looked unhealthy I can remember the difference from one year to the next and I can tell you he definitely didn't look healthy at all but his vo2 max as a 21 year old was 86 milliliters per kilogram per minute his map or his maximum aerobic power was 455 watts which is 7.3 watts per kilogram his 30 minute time trial wattage was 391 watts which is 6.3 watts per kilogram and my estimate from this data is that his FTP was between 327 and 350 which it's around 72 to 70 percent of your maximum aerobic power and in watts per kilogram figures that's 5.3 to 5.6 watts per kilogram which puts him in the exceptional domestic pro range of Coggins power profile chart. So considering that when Cadell won the tour, he was 34. So 13 years after this info, you can see the role of building year on year from an already strong starting position, but you can really see what it takes to win the Tour de France because his numbers at 21 were good and he was doing a lot with them, but he had to continually build and build and build in order to perform and win the tour. The crappy thing is, is I don't have 
any figures to compare the 21-year-old Cadell to the Cadell of now or even when he won the tour because there's no published figures out there. And, of course, a lot of riders at the top level of the Euro peloton hold on to their figures. But his weight has increased slightly to 65 to 67 kilograms, and you would assume that his FTP has slowly risen incrementally risen from that time. Dr. Martin goes on to show a comparison between Armstrong and Cadell in similar testing. And while it's a little hard to draw the parallels because the nature of testing, just looking at the numbers, Cadell is higher across all of the measures when they're at the same ages. The VO2 max, the aerobic power per kilogram, gross efficiency, they're all higher than Lance at the same age. So I'll draw my own conclusion about this and especially looking back on the last era of cycling and how someone can come through clean, part of the answer to me really is outstanding class and and Cadell really displays this class with these numbers. But it isn't all about numbers though and the interesting thing about Cadell's international riding career, as a junior mountain bike rider, he never won a world championship. Over seven years of trying for a world championship and two Olympics with no medals, what would you do? Would you consider it a defeat and then call it a day or would you use it as motivation to do better? Martin believes it was motivating for Cadell and I think it implanted something in him or it highlighted something in him that was already there and he faced faced a lot of disappointment and frustration over those seven years. So picking up the World Cup Series is little consolation to coming second in a world champ race. To further expand on this point and to make an unfair comparison, if you look at the career of Miguel Martinez, Cadell's junior MTB nemesis, he was third in the 96 Olympics. He went on to win the gold in the 2000 Games. And adding to those results, he won two mountain bike world champs as well as cyclocross world champs champs and he placed twice in the World Mountain Bike Championships as a junior as well. He also followed Cadell and in 2002 I think they rode for the same team Mapai but he made a transition to road after the Olympics riding the Tour de France but he never really captured those early years again and he's now back racing the mountain bike in the World Cup scene as a 38 year old but compare the same years of Cadell where he was getting beat at every opportunity, the results were right there, but he was unable to reach out and grab the rainbow, which really lends itself to Martin's theory here that it just motivated him to try harder, to figure out what was going wrong and to adjust things so that he could end up winning. In this part of the presentation, this is where Professor Carol S. Dweck is brought up by Martin's and It's interesting because she's someone that I came across a while back and actually features in episode 7 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, but her work revolves around two categories of mindset development, and quoting from episode 7's notes, the first one is the fixed mindset, where people believe their abilities are fixed. You have a certain amount of talent to ride a bike, and that's it. New things can be learned, but ability cannot be changed. You have a certain amount of talent, and that's it turns people away from growing because they are more worried on what they have rather than getting better. Or a growth mindset where people believe they can change their ability over time. Through effort and learning, their ability can be cultivated and developed through their lives. Things can be developed, increased through effort, persistence, and structuring. So the main point 
that Martin raises in relation to this work is the danger in telling someone that they're a natural, that they're talented, that they've got a gift. And this in turn causes a person to stop being a learner and instead they act conservatively. They stop being adventurous because they're afraid of showing the world that they're fallible, which puts up a boundary between them and others when trying to accept themselves and others. To put it in perspective of Cadell, the most important takeaway here is that high effort does not mean low ability. Where a lot of people think that because you don't get something straight away, you struggle to move some past some negative thoughts if you don't catch on to something straight away or we don't win a certain race on the first try and this type of thinking is dangerous because it's a prerequisite for success to be able to put in the work no matter how talented you are and in an environment like the AIS it seems the added benefit to Cadell was the support in those hard times not just the moral support in a team but in a team that looks at failures as an opportunity themselves to find new ways to succeed, and that itself would be quite empowering to be around. So part of this was having an ability or a willingness to accept any technology or crazy things that the sports scientists at the AIS would come up with. And this willingness to experiment, or at least to test and be open to new possibilities, is something that Cadell I believe, has taken through his entire career, even after the AIS. But this brings us to Cadell's transition to the road. And riding for the MAPI team, he was presented with lots of challenges, the weather, the riding conditions, the language. And while these would normally be challenges to someone that may stop them from going any further, he could move beyond these because he was prepared to see these as challenges and try and get to the bottom of them rather than seeing them as something that's going to stop him or challenge his identity of himself. And behind all of this was a transfer to Mapai Sport and this was guided by Aldo Sassi who respected the Australian program and made the transition easy for Cadell. So Aldo then became Cadell's coach and would coach him up until 2010 when he unfortunately died well before his time. But the cool thing about this is that This started both organizations working together. They leveraged the relationship with Cadell to continue working together, and they still work together today. They have forged many ideas through joint research projects and studies and ultimately continued Cadell's development via hard evidence rather than just guessing. Which, if you start to look at the advancements that Cadell has been part of over his career, you start to get a picture of how big of a role it's played, but also how big a role he's played in helping to develop ideas and technology that will continue his legacy. And things that he has been involved with or have been part of the process with the AIS and the MAPI Sports Center are things like course profiling, specific recovery techniques, aero testing, pre-cooling research, competitive analysis, altitude training, fluid intake on hills, climbing modeling, video databasing, and helmet research. So there is a lot of things that surround the success of Cadell. But when Cadell looks back on his career, When he finally hangs up his bike, how will he be remembered? I'd like to think that outside of his achievements, he'll be remembered as someone that kept on going. Regardless of the outcome, he believed in himself and backed himself long after many had given up. And I believe Martin sums it up nicely in this quote, If I try harder, I might fail, but eventually I will get there. So hopefully that gives you a bit of an insight into Cadell, his life, his 
interaction with the Australian Institute of Sport and the MAPI Sports Centre and how much sports science has guided him through this whole journey, but not just where sports science can take claim to what he's achieved, because he's the one that's ultimately done it. And there are a lot of inbuilt characteristics that led to his success. Okay, the tech hacks and products section. This week, a product, a newly released product that's not even out there, but it raises a couple of interesting questions. XTR DI2. So mountain biking electronic shifting group set. And this is for me a really, really exciting development, especially the news of Shimano's one-handed shifting, the synchro shift. And the synchro shift is something that I was talking about with some buddies of mine just as news was coming out of the SRAM road wireless group because apparently they're going to have a similar system. But it seems that Shimano's been working on this as well. And the reason I raise it is because it's a really interesting interesting concept that I think might just work. And the idea behind it is that shifting up and down based on your gear ratios. So both front and derailers are controlled by one shifter and shifting up and down and the transmission will follow a pre-programmed and also customizable shifting map. It moves both derailers when necessary to find the next ratio while maintaining a good chain line. And if you check out any of the videos, you'll see how it does this. And it's probably surprising the ratios where you don't actually think about the ratio when you're riding a bike. So you may be in the granny ring and go up to the largest cog where that may not necessarily be the best ratio for you. So that's interesting in itself, but I think it really opens up a lot of things here. It's not compulsory, by the way, so you can override it and do it manually shifting with two shifters. But I really wonder what it's like to ride, and I'm interested in what you think the applications for this are and whether it will be worthwhile and a step forward when it comes to gearing and riding mountain bikes. And now that quote from the top of the show, it's Jack Haig, Australia's next climbing hope. He's a young gun. You would have seen him at the Tour Down Under if you were paying attention, but he had a really good run last year winning the National Road Series. And this year he's focusing on the mountain bike before he tries to step up to a Pro Tour team in 2015, which is really exciting for Aussie fans. And what's interesting here is that he isn't part of the Australian Institute of sport that we were just speaking about with Cadell, especially because Australia doesn't even have a mountain bike program anymore. So he has a different approach to Cadell, even though he has similar ambitions where he's taken this year off to ride the Commonwealth Games. If you are not in a Commonwealth country, don't even worry about what they are. But he will switch to road next year after he's done with the Commonwealth Games. So that is an interesting prospect. But it will be interesting to watch him go through the process of becoming a pro outside of the Australian Institute of Sports program. So definitely good luck, Jack. I can't wait to see you in the Propello ripping it up next year. And that's it. You have been listening to the Semi Pro Performance Podcast. Remember to head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash to find any links used in this week's episode. From there, you can sign up for the free Wheelhouse Masterclass, Building the Base, a step-by-step system for achieving your cycling goals. And till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. (laughs) 